from Relay FM. This is Downstream, a podcast about the present and future of streaming media. This is episode number 45, recorded June the 1st, 2023. I'm your master of ceremonies. My name is Jason Snell. With me, as always, is our director of strategy, Julia Alexander. Hi, Julia. Hey, Jason. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm a little sniffly, so I apologize to our listeners, but otherwise, I'm great. All right. Awesome. Well, uh, you sound yeah, you sound good to me. Um uh, sorry you're feeling a little under the weather, but um uh, we're gonna soldier on. We got a big show, not a lot of time. We're we're very busy. You're right between meetings now as we're doing this. Um and that's actually a little related. So we're gonna start with a little bit of meta news. Um taking inspiration from the subject that we talk about here, we're gonna make a change to the podcast and we're gonna add a paid membership tier called What Else? Downstream Plus. It's Downstream true. Plus. Do we? I, where does that? I think that's an a, a, a plus grade, or maybe even like an S tier kind of uh, name. Downstream Plus. I couldn't think of any other name for it, quite frankly. Um, let me explain what's going on here. So, if you've been listening to the show since the beginning, you've heard very few ads. That's not. I mean, it's great for you as a listener, I guess, but it's not great uh, for us as podcasters. The ad market is tough right now, uh, and so how do we make this show make sense? We're both very busy. We need to fit this in. We need to make it something that we. Uh, it makes sense for us to keep doing. Uh, so we created Downstream Plus. It's a little different from some of the other paid podcast subscriptions you may be aware of, but it's actually not that different from something like uh, Substack or a paid blog like Stratechery. Um, basically, we're going to keep doing podcasts every two weeks. So even if you're subscribed to just the free feed, uh, you'll get something every two weeks. If you're a member of Downstream Plus, that second episode, the every other episode, uh, right now it would be the even episodes you're going to get if you're a member you're going to get the full episode and if you're not a member you're going to get a short version of the episode that's got one topic in it basically also if we ever do sell ads again the ads come back you won't hear them if you're a member um so that's basically how it works there's going to be a a completely free episode and then the next episode after that will be either for members a full episode or for non-members a shorter episode but you'll still get something we promise um and here's how you do it. So become a member by going to the greatest domain ever created, downstream.plus. Did you know that there was a .plus domain, uh, Julia? There is. Dot- I did not. And this is the best news. I'm finding out about this live with everyone else. Live. So this that, is great. That's right. Uh, we talked about the concept before, but you're you're hearing the pitch for the first time. Downstream.plus, folks. $5 a month or $50 a year. When you join, you'll also get access to the Relay FM members Discord. A lot of good conversations going on in there, as well as another podcast feed that you can subscribe to that's got a whole bunch of other members-only content from other shows and from the network itself, Relay FM. A lot of great shows on our network and a lot of great benefits for members, in addition to getting the full uh even not odd full even episode unless we have a special episode in which case it'll all kind of be reversed but you get it right there's like one week it'll be or one fortnight it'll be big and the next fortnight it'll be big for members and smaller for non-members and we'll keep the numbers in sync and everything so downstream.plus or just go to relay.fm slash downstream and click the subscribe link at the top of the page. And if you're already a Relay FM member who supports downstream, and there are some of you out there who just decided to give us money for nothing, thank you. Thank you. And now uh, <laughs> you'll get something, which is even better. So thank you all for your consideration. But we will still uh, put lots of good stuff in the free feed regardless. Okay. Before we get to big topics, I have a little bit of follow-up for you. 
um, yes. which is that Max launched. <laughs> so after right. our last episode, Max actually launched. It was a little bit rocky. I couldn't log in on day one. I have a, an account through my internet provider, and it was hilariously um, not hooked up right at launch. <laughs> so about, about a day later, they got it. I felt I feel for the technical people because they were struggling, and obviously this was not a thing um, that uh, they had ready to go on launch day. Although I have to say, a little report that I'll give to you, Julia, um, when it's authenticating me as a user, one of the addresses that it cycles through before spitting me out the other side is hbogo.com. Oh, remember? <laughs> it's still there. <laughs> At least it, their authentication chain has an HBO Go file somewhere. Or it's like the somewhere. ghosts of HBO past. Right, right. To get to the future. I love that. That's that's poet. That's poetic, really. Right. I mean, it really, um, yeah, it warmed my heart a little bit. And then also then it didn't work. And I was like, oh, <laughs> all of you HBOs and Maxes. Uh, anyway, the big story rising from it, though, is that um, they invented a credit for their content called Creators, oh, yeah. where they just dumped all the writers and directors of a movie or a TV show. And, uh, you know, it's like they didn't realize that how people are credited is kind of a big deal in the entertainment industry. Whoops. <laughs> You know what's really funny about this? So this happened, right? And the first, well, two funny things happened. I don't know if you noticed this, Jason. So there was like a story that came out. It was either in Deadline or Variety. It was one of the trades. And effectively, they had put blame on this uh, on the IT department. And they were basically like, no one ran this up for the executive. So they didn't know what was happening. First of all, the IT department does not implement things by themselves. The IT department is like, <laughs> is this what you want to do? And then they implement it. So mm -hmm. let us lay off. IT employees who are the reason that our offices continue running as well as they do, we have to lay off IT, first and foremost. Yes. Second of all, what was in what was funny to me about this story is that for the most part, the mo the, the vocal uh sorry, the non-vocal majority that exists, right? They, I would argue, don't care about this, not in a malicious way, but they just don't notice it. They're kind of like, oh, well, I'm hitting play. I'm not necessarily looking at credits. The issue is that the same people who were going to be, uh, you know, upset about Max or have opinions on the, the Max change and kind of what's happening with HBO are also going to be people who are very interested in the credits. And yes. <laughs> they should have known that in Hollywood, of course, writers and directors and actors and producers want to be labeled as such. They are in unions that label them as such. They are literally yeah. picketing right now to, in order to be treated better as such. So the idea that they were listed kind of uh, homogeneously as creators, a term that we give to, and not in a derogatory way, but the, we give to a lot of like YouTubers and influencers on Instagram, right? This idea of this is what they view us as in this very tech forward world, as opposed to this kind of establishment of being a writer on this. I wrote this, being an actor and I acted in this, produced it, I produced it, is I think just another example of the kind of gap between a lot of the executives who are coming into streaming who are just not thinking about this and then the traditional executives who are aware of how talent are and are saying sure we're we're kind of moving entertainment into this next phase but not at the you know um not at the ill will of the creative parties that we're working with, especially those who are on strike currently yeah. outside your main buildings. It really was a sort of insult to injury kind of moment given yes. the strike is going on. And there's a lot of talk about uh, creative people in Hollywood not being appreciated by the uh, the the big corporate types. And this felt like a, a good right. It's like 
they stepped in it at exactly the wrong time. And in another context, right. stepping in, it might have been uh, less of an issue. Um, I, I wanted to bring this up also because you mentioned don't blame the tech people. I feel like and this is something that I used to talk about even back on the, the my old TV talk machine days. Um, the mental shift that has to go on when you're becoming a direct to consumer business. I remember when Bob Iger mm-hmm. the first, not Bob Iger the second, <laughs> uh, Bob, Bob Iger, King Bob the first, uh, talked about how Disney was boldly going to start a direct to consumer business, right? It was a big deal for Disney to start Disney Plus. And, you know, Netflix has always been that way, but all of these other studios uh, that are now creating direct to consumer businesses, I think the mistake and you've seen it play out over and over again is that while they've got a lot of experience doing things like programming a network Mm -hmm. on linear, what they don't have a lot of experience with at the high levels of these companies is understanding things about software and software interfaces and all of the things that go with it, which, and, and this is not so true at Netflix because, and I think Netflix is the example that that actually proves this is the other companies were never structured around the user experience in the way that Netflix was because there wasn't a user experience. It went into movie theaters or it went onto some TV network that programmed it a certain way. Or yes, if you have your own TV network, then you've got network executives who do that. But, but this direct to consumer interface that's mediated through software web pages and apps on streaming boxes and phones and tablets and computers. That's the storefront. And a lot of these companies, I mean, I think that some of them are starting to get it, but I had that thought when I saw what happened with Max, there are a bunch of other interesting technical things that went on with Max and how it was all set up. And like in certain app stores, you had to download a new app um, and log in again in other ones. You didn't, uh, there were all sorts of like uh, decisions made. Like they, they uh, replaced the player on the Apple TV with a custom player that doesn't work right compared to Apple's standard player. Uh, they HBO Max already did that and then took it back when it was a disaster. But Max is devoted to trying again. And I just keep thinking about that same thing, which is I think if you look at the websites and the apps for these companies, you can probably get a pretty good sense of which companies are starting to understand the importance of their digital storefronts as not afterthoughts, but like as the most important thing, as important as the content that that plays when you click on them. Uh, if not more so, in some cases, I think Netflix would argue, and, and I, I know you've argued that like where Netflix puts things is one of the most important things that Netflix does. So this this just struck me as being an example where perhaps some executives rolled in and didn't really consider some of the technical stuff uh, or at least give it the priority or the funding or the people that are required when it is absolutely business critical stuff, right? Just like uh, it's it's <laughs> if you treat him like the guy who fixes your printer, you're going to be in trouble because it is your it is your storefront. I just want to add on top because I think it's, you brought up a really important point, which is there is not enough attention paid to the technology, and there is far too much attention, or I should say, far too much forethought kind of leaning into the culture of technology. And I think a great example of this is to add on top of what everything Jason just said, instead of thinking about the actual technology usage, their terms like creator go hand in hand with terms like content, right? Like this idea that like, this is 
a piece of digital thing that appears and people consume it. If we think about the term user, like like a user really comes from the, an idea that we're trying to get people hooked on a product, right? It's like an addictive thing. So therefore they're using it and it's user as opposed to even think of the way that Jason phrased it back in the old school television and, and movie going days, you were a TV viewer or you were an audience member, right? And now it's like, we're trying to get users to consume content by creators, so there's this culture of kind of Silicon Valleyification happening in, in, in entertainment. And I think to an extent, Netflix has figured out a way to kind of do this without rubbing people the wrong way, or at least have managed to do it kind of successfully because Netflix has always come from that. I think when you're Warner Brothers Discovery and you're kind of saying we host, you know, The Sopranos and we host all these really beloved films, the idea that you're then saying this is created by, which is not something that Netflix wouldn't even do really kind of showcases the leaning into the techification of the product without actually paying attention to the specifics of the technology that run that product and making sure that it is up to par with what at least Netflix has built. So I think it's this really interesting dichotomy happening at the company where you're leaning into the technology aspect that has kind of defined consumption in the last 10 years, but you're dealing with an industry that is very aware of and very concerned about that exact thing happening to the point that they are on strike over it, right? Like, like, or, or at least in part because of it. And so I think that just, I, you said it best, Jason, really hit at the, the, it was the wrong thing to hit at precisely the wrong time with precisely the wrong people. Um, and I think it just goes to show a lack of forethought for, for a bunch of that. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to make a note too, because I, I'm pretty sure a lot of our listeners are, more technically inclined people, and some of them probably actually work at some of these companies. What I'm not saying is the people who build these these the software products and the web interfaces and all of that don't care. I think they do of care course. incredibly, and I've heard from some of them. I think the challenge is any or look, and this is not e- I'm not saying this is easy. Any organization that was built to do one thing and now needs to prioritize something else is going to have a yeah. really hard time shifting gears and changing culture in order to listen to the parts of the business that didn't used to be that important, but now are incredibly important. And so you end up in situations where exactly. the, the person who's in charge of the app or or their boss or their boss's boss doesn't have a seat at the table when they should or doesn't get the funding that they should. They're, they're funded at a level uh, uh, for sort of tech support instead of a, at a level for the importance of the product at the company. And so I think that these are not about the people working on the products. I think that the truth is like Warner Media or Disney, did it need to be did they need to be a tech company before? Disney bought MLB Advanced Media for this reason actually is cuz they realized they needed to have this technology, but like it's a, it's a tough thing for companies to adapt to and uh, and you know but it's i think one of the things we always have to watch when we talk about the streaming world because that's one of the big transitions happening it's not just business models it's how do these companies correctly or incorrectly prioritize their tech stack whether it's streaming availability you know uh big demand and something goes down or you decide to finally stream something live like netflix did and discover that live stream has a different dynamic that's not something that's in your wheelhouse all of these things are part of the business in a way that maybe a lot of the executives at the top are not comfortable with because it's not what the business used to be like so exactly but we we feel your pain app developers we know it's hard (laughs) you're not appreciated except here we appreciate you (laughs) all right um let us move on i want to talk about something you wrote at puck about netflix netflix uh told everybody five million global monthly active users (laughs) what what 
but as you point out, what what does that mean? So they they have five million of something seeing ads on Netflix. Is that what they're saying? And 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 what is going on with how Netflix is trying to talk about its uh its brand new ad driven business? Okay, according to my understanding of this global monthly active user, uh, based on people I've talked to at Netflix. It is when they look at accounts on a ad-supported profile, they count the number of active accounts on that profile, which I think are capped anyways, um, but they count the number of active accounts and then they basically rem- remove kids because they don't advertise to kids. Ah. Uh, and so if let's say, hypothetically, there's four people on this ad-supported account, one's a child, three are adults, then they would count that as three monthly active users if there were kind of, you know, these active accounts on the supported plan. And the reason that I wanted to write about this, and the reason I think Jason and I want to talk about it, is streaming numbers are really difficult. And before I get into it with Netflix, I want to preemptively say this because I know a lot of our listeners are in the tech industry and, and are hyper aware of this. No one actually gives like a pretty accurate portrayal of like how many people are in fact using. If we look at how, you know, Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat kind of look at theirs, they say, you know, we have this many monthly active users that's based in logins, it's based on app downloads. Like it, they, they, there's certain ways of saying like, here are our numbers. And obviously when you're going to the upfronts, which is which is where Netflix presented, which is a big presentation to Madison Avenue and and, and kind of the advertisers and saying, you know, here's why you should advertise with us. You're going to make yourself look as great as possible. So I understand this. I'm not trying to say, wow, how could Netflix do this? Every company does this. Disney basically triple counts its subscribers on the (laughs) bundle subscription, right? Like they all do this. So I'm not upset about it, but I think it's really interesting because when we look at what consumption means on these accounts versus what subscription means on these accounts, and then how do we get to an average revenue per user kind of by totality of those customers, we get a better idea of the lifetime value of those customers. We get a better idea of the health of a potential product like the advertising tier. We get a better idea of what this means for Netflix and because everyone in this industry is still following Netflix to an extent, what it means for the rest of these companies rolling out kind of ad tiers or or, or determining whether or not they want to do that. So yeah, my, my question was kind of like, Okay, so if they don't have, it's not 5 million customers. A lot of headlines, which is why Netflix stock bumped uh, in in the day that followed the presentation, a lot of headlines erroneously said that they added 5 million new customers. By Netflix's own kind of metric of success, that could be, you know, 10 million users, right? If it was 5 million new customers. Instead, what we're looking at is maybe 2 to 2.5 million new customers, a vast majority of those likely not coming from the U.S. market, uh, most of them probably coming from the Latin America and, and, and European market, where there's a little bit more of a taste for kind of that cheaper tier. Uh, and so we get a better understanding of what this looks like, even within the first six months of the company's uh, business, which, of course, we'll have a better look at in, you know, the year, year and a half. But I, I do think as we start to really talk about advertising and its effect and its massive value contribution to streaming, we're going to have to slowly move away from a lot of the logistical language that we've been using, which listeners of this show will know is a lot of just pure sub numbers. It's a lot of pure, here's how many subscribers are still paying, here are the acquisition and retention numbers, all of which are still very important. But as we move more, actually, ironically, back into this combination of the way we measure television yesterday and the way that we measure user consumption, you know, today with with technology, with social media, this kind of middle ground 
alongside the subscription that comes with that middle ground is going to be a really interesting playground for the future success, both from a revenue perspective, but also a longevity perspective of these companies. Yeah, it's um, you talk in your piece about ARPU and how they have this average revenues per year average revenue per user and how they it's like it's a nice number but like what does it mean this is the obfuscation that just is naturally happening when they say arpu for a user in the u.s is this it's not like breaking out the ad revenue people and the mid-tier people and the high-tier people and it's a number that kind of you have to make some guesses about it, it you know it's complicated um and and then the other thing you mentioned also is that you know we're also talking about Netflix is adding people to their ad supported plans, but they've built such a, an audience of premium tier ad free people. Whereas all, Netflix's competitors, especially the ones who came to market with an ad tier, a much larger component of their business is the ad tier. So there's going to be, right. um, whether that limits Netflix or whether Netflix gets sort of like a slower transfer of people going from a, a premium plan to an ad tier plan um, it will be interesting to watch. I would imagine, and this is something we talked about last time about um, Disney reporting, I believe that they're, that they were having better ARPU um, from ad tier people than from non ad tier people. What it means is the next step is that the non ad tiers are going to get raised in price. And I would assume that for Netflix, that will push a certain percentage of those people down into an ad tier to save money, but we don't know. Right. I mean, I argue this in the piece. If they do exactly that, then the cannibalization concerns are not necessarily concerns, right? They're kind of opportunities. If the right. argument is that 99% of people as of last uh, as of the last time I looked at third-party research data on this, 99% of people in the US still use Netflix ad-free. I suspect that if they increase the price of Netflix to $3 on the ad-free plan, maybe you get Four, maybe three to four percent. You know, I'm just thinking of these. Are, these aren't numbers. Please don't take this as financial data. Uh, I'm just spitballing. But like, you get three to four percent. Three to four percent of people who go down a level. If they're actually making, you know, sixteen, seventeen dollars on that customer, eighteen dollars on that customer, and now that they're so they're still making that, and now they're making, you know. $19.20 on the ad-free customer or whatever it might be, or right? it could be the other way around, whatever it is, then the fact that they're not losing that customer and they're actually still making more than they would have made even without raising the prices because that customer is going to an ad-free, let's say you lose 2% of customers overall, right? Like as you're kind of figuring out that math, it really works out for Netflix. Um, the thing that we can kind of do with the average revenue per user, Netflix refers to it as average revenue per member. Um, if we kind of look at how they are judging a lot of the success, they have already said in their recent earnings report that they're making more money per member on the ad supported plan than the ad free plan. And so there is a world in which Netflix may want more of that, but you can't well, I know this leads into a question, so I'm gonna I'm gonna stop here. But but there is kind of this catch twenty two. All right, let me bring in the letter uh, we got from listener Ben that I thought I would raise into here because I think it's a good one that is 
directly related, which is Ben wrote, if ARPU is higher for customers on the ad tier and customers on the more expensive ad free tier presumably have more money to spend, why do streamers even have an ad free tier? Wouldn't they make more money by taking away the ad free tier and putting ads in front of more people? Can you explain why this is not being done? Love to your mothers. I, I, I feel like the initial thought here is that this is out of balance, right? And in the long run, they will make ARPU work for them, right? Like, I, I, I see the argument that's like, well, just put ads, give everybody ads, and then you'll make more money. And the people who have more money to spend are great people to advertise to. I, I would guess that there is a sweet spot that they will eventually find, which is a spot at which they are making plenty of money from you whether they show you ads or not. But the problem is the current price, I know this is going to be hard for people to leave when you look at how much money you're spending on streaming services, but the current price of ad-free streaming service uh, subscriptions is kind of untenable for the companies that are selling it to you, given how much money they're spending on content, which means they're going to go up, especially if Bob Iger reports that when they raise the price of Disney+, Plus, they don't lose anybody. It shows that they could keep raising it and they're not going to lose anybody or at least very many people. I would think that eventually there will come a time when there's a, a better balance where the, you know, they're happy to make their money from either direction, depending on what you're willing to give them. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's exactly, but there's a big part of them that are, especially Netflix, right? It's the idea that you're leaning into the consumer want, um, you're leaning into a consumer that is over inundated with advertising. And so if there is a consumer that is making, you know, household income that's much higher and they're happy to pay for ad free and they're they're consuming on the app and they're good with that, then there's no reason to say, well, you shouldn't be using it. It doesn't cost them anything to not do that. Um, you also sometimes get concerns with the type of content on an ad tier uh, this was like a big argument for HBO, right? And like Showtime, like there, there was a big thing where they were like, we're not going to worry about advertiser concern or FCC concerns or whatever it might be. Like, we're going to just do our own thing and we're going to charge people. And that way we are operating by different standards than others. Um, and we can kind of do what we want. So there's, you know, that was more of a concern circa 1990. Uh, I know, I think it's probably not too much of a concern now, but, but it might be to an extent where you're kind of saying, well, this is a pre, you know, this is a type of offering that maybe the advertisers don't want to be on, but we really want to do it. Again, much less of a concern now than it would have been 30 years ago. Right. Uh, but, but so there's that. But the real thing comes down to like the point of streaming, remember, was to give consumers uh, more freedom over how they wanted to watch what they were going to watch. And if they wanted to pay for, and they were going to go out of their way to pay for it, then they were going to give them what they wanted. And at the time, that was ad-free. I would argue it's still ad-free. It's just that the number of subscribers have gone, excuse me, the number of subscription services have gone way up. And so people are saying, well, I don't mind watching an ad, two ads, four ads, if it means that I'm going to get the content that I want. I think what you'll see a lot of people do is choose one, maybe two primary services where yeah. they pay the $15, $16 ad-free because they use that most often. So in this household, it, it would be uh, Hulu and HBO Max. And then you'll see people subscribe to the ad-supported platform that's usually about half the price uh, and has a couple of ads, but they're not watching as much. Um, they might be using it strictly for um, sports, and so it's only seasonal. And then the last part of this equation is it also depends on the audience. Um, so 
boomers, for example, and this is not an insult by any means, but when they are getting out of the cable bundle, they decide to, and they're going to a streaming service where they just want access to the library, they want access to some of uh, the, the news that they're watching, maybe some some sports of some kind. You think about a Peacock or a Paramount Plus, they kind of want the cheapest option possible, and they're happy to right. put up with ads. So for them, they don't need the ad free. So really, it all comes down to consumer choice and just make it, it costs them nothing to offer both. And they make you know they make money off both so why not yeah i mean there could be some evil corporation that's like no everybody watches ads but i think that your point is a good one which is as long as it's all profitable to them in one way or another um letting people choose because there is a certain percentage of the public that will say i would really rather pony up a little bit more and sometimes it's not just ad free but it's ad free and more streams at once and 4k hdr surround sound right and you bundle that up into the premium package and then you've got the and 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 some people will pay for it and other people won't and that's fine because there's a cheaper package for them um thank you to listener ben for writing in i want to i want to pivot from that to uh, another story that i thought was really interesting and the moment i saw it i said i want to talk to you about it which is the continued shrinking of traditional tv and and we talk about it i mean this is why this is why we're here, but I, I there was a, a recent uh, study by SVB Moffat Nathanson, um, and, and this report talks about pay TV penetration in the U.S. Total pay TV penetration in the U.S. is now down to fifty eight point five percent. That is the lowest price or the lowest number since nineteen ninety two, and that was right before Direct TV launched and was able to reach people who did not have cable TV. So we're going way back here. It's down seven percent. Cable is down 10%. Satellite is down 13%. That's all. Uh I mean, that's basically dog bites man territory. We know that total traditional cable and satellite is going down as people cut the cord. But here's the part that I thought was really interesting, which is our favorite acronym on this podcast, MVPVDs, uh, which is virtual cable companies that stream like YouTube TV. That category was down 264,000 viewers in Q1, which means even the futuristic cable for cable cutters things are down. That whole category down. Uh, Hulu down 100,000. Fubo, which I subscribe to, down 160,000. The only provider that SVB Moffat Nathanson uh, monitored that gained subscribers in the first quarter of this year was YouTube TV which added about 300,000 subscribers. So good for them. But I find this really interesting that when we when we talk about the decline of the traditional bundle, although these VMPVD alternatives do exist and people do use them, they are also struggling because they're still a traditionally priced bundle of channels just delivered in a different way. I think that's really interesting that other than YouTube TV, um, everything is down just because they're a a cord cutting thing like Hulu plus live TV or Fubo doesn't mean they're growing necessarily because even that category is shrinking a little bit. I was, I was kind of surprised to see that, that that it's the overall trend is just so far down that even these, uh, services that are trying to do it in a new way, they're still in a universe that's going down. Do you know, I don't think I was too surprised. Interesting. And here's why to an extent. So I have this this long hypothesis I've been working on. Um, I'm not going to get into here because it's like a whole thing. But part of this is this idea that 
trying to replicate a model, but changing the pipe slightly <laughs> doesn't work. Yeah. Right. Like like kind of like if we think about what a lot of these are, it is it is a version of cable. It's cable. That is slightly cheap. Exactly. It's slightly cheaper. And all, the only difference is that you get it over your Internet now as opposed to from a, a TV provider. And you have choice. I mean, th- there's choice. And so therefore, there's sure. some competition and some differentiation of features and sure. some differentiation of programming. But ultimately, the cost structure is not that different. And so the prices aren't that different at, from each other or from cable and satellite. And and so and so, what are we saying that all of these, whether it's pay TV, whether it's these VMPVT, P, VMPVD, uh, mm-hmm. the, the word, the acronym that is always going to make me just. It's, but um, yep. what are we saying that these guys do? They carry content. What have we known for the last five six years that P, the content creators are doing? They're taking them away from it, right? If you think about even even the premium channels, if you think about like, oh, I want. Um, access to uh, VMPVD typically for sports, right? Or for premium cable. I yeah. want, I get my Bravo on there. If you're Bravo and you're watching Vanderpump Rules or whatever it is, that thing airs, and then two hours later, a better, longer, uncensored version is on Peacock. So if you are me and my friend group, you're on yep. Peacock. The amount of people who have requested YouTube TV access out of my friend group, and this is anecdotal, of course has died down in the last six months, the amount of people who have asked for access to Paramount Plus and Peacock have increased. And so again, if we think about the basic issue, the content creators are saying, we want to kind of figure out a way to rein this in or license out to other specific streaming platforms like HBO Max or Hulu, whatever it might be, um, and are saying, we're, we're taking stuff off linear and the sports leagues are beginning to do kind of similar things, right? The sports leagues yep. are saying, we're about oh, to get we don't there. want to be experimenting yes. with this too. Uh-huh. This idea of like, well, if you remove the content, what is the point of the distribution model? Yeah. If nothing has changed except the type of content that you're bundling at slightly cheaper, people are still going to do one of two things. They're going to go pay for the thing that gives them better access to that that content they want. So if it's Bravo, it's Peacock. If they just want access to F1, they'll go to wherever they're to get that at the cheapest way possible. And two is that you see an increase in piracy. You see an increase in people going, I just don't want to pay for any of it. I'd rather not do that. And I'm going to figure out a way if you can go on Reddit, you can go on Google. They try their best. And I give them credit, the teams there. They try their best to stop it. It's still the first page of Google. It's like the first result in Reddit. It's like, here's where you go to watch this thing. Those Mm -hmm. sites are increasingly easy to find. The quality is getting increasingly better. Uh, And so this is a problem, right? If we think about YouTube TV, which is really interesting. YouTube TV has done two things really well. It has bundled itself with streamers. Where it is said, hey, you sign up for YouTube TV, you get HBO Max for three months free. Like, we're going to throw that in. So the thing that you're going to go sign up for, actually, if you come to us, you get all that plus this and more. And YouTube TV has the advantage of YouTube. It has the advantage of saying, not only do we know what you're interested in from here, but also on our free ad-supported 2 billion videos uploaded like a month or whatever it is platform that has extra extra content from your favorite sports and your favorite players and your favorite celebrities your favorite musicians we have that too and we can we can recommend it and so the youtube doesn't just say we're the content distributor it is we are also your content supplier and we're aware of where the content suppliers are headed and how can we bundle that well i think i'm gonna just go back to your point about um just because it's a different pipe if it's the same product I think that's that's exactly it. The the v, VMPVDs, it's hard not to just see them as a tra- transitional product. And I'm glad they exist. I use one. I'm glad I was able to free myself from my cable provider 
uh, and not take my internet provider's TV package, right? Or or be unable to free myself from my cable provider because it was the best TV package. I'm glad of that. But um, the unbundling and then rebundling will continue, right? Because all I'm, I mean, essentially all I'm paying for is for live sports with that. And some of those sports are duplicated on streaming services that I pay for. So once, and, and, th- and this is the perfect lead in actually to Sports Corner. Sports Corner. Because uh, it's time for Sports Corner where two big developments, I think, point the way to what we're talking about here. So um, the first one was about a month ago, which is the new owner of the Phoenix Suns, NBA team in Phoenix, uh, made a deal starting next season. Here's the deal. They're going to show all of their son's basketball games that they're entitled to show. Some of them are national exclusives on like TNT or whatever, but all the ones that they would previously have shown on their local Valley Sports Arizona regional sports network. Those are all going to be shown over the air for free in Phoenix on one of the company's, I think, three TV stations. So they're going to cycle them through, but they'll all be available over the air, which means they'll also all be available on cable and satellite for people who have traditional linear TV in Arizona. However, by making this deal directly themselves, the other thing the Suns are doing is setting up their own, you guessed it, direct-to-consumer subscription service where you will pay and watch those games via streaming. So you can choose how you want to get the suns, either you get cable or satellite or an antenna, <laughs> or uh, you pay and get it on, on the internet streamed. And they don't care. They're happy to do either one. You choose. And the way they phrased it, which, I, which in the second story I want to mention was also phrased this way, um, total addressable audience. Who could see the suns game, basically? Uh, and... In the previous contract, which was Bally Sports Arizona's regional sports network, there uh, it was a third of the audience, 2.8 million households, that they will now reach uh, because do you have the internet? Do you have cable? Do you have an antenna? Uh, do Any of these things, and, and it doesn't matter, I mean, anything that's got local channels or the internet, you can get the Suns games now. Um very smart deal i i i had never really thought about like what if you just made a deal with local broadcast and then stream it because then you've kind of got everything so it's gonna be really interesting to see what happens there and then the other story is a couple of days ago as we record this uh bally sports san diego uh diamond sports that's in in uh in bankruptcy um they they missed their payment to the San Diego Padres and then they missed their grace period. And at the end of one day they were on the Padres games were on Valley sports, San Diego. And the literally the next day, the games were on major league baseball and major league baseball swooped in. Uh, all the announcers are the same. They changed the graphic package because they're not using valleys anymore. Um, they made a deal with all the cable and satellite providers that serve San Diego to make a, basically a, watch the Padres channel available when a game is going on. And once again, you can go to MLB's website if you're in San Diego and buy a Padres in-market streaming package and watch the games direct. So these are two examples where the, the regional sports network business model has broken down and is being replaced. 
Now, you and I have talked about this a lot already. The big issue is the amount of money they made from the regional sports networks where every cable subscriber was subsidizing it is gone in this scenario. So it's going to be interesting to see how the revenue shakes out. And I, I suspect that although this year they're going to sell Padres fans $75 to stream the rest of the season, in the long run, that's probably a $200 a year at least product that they're going to have to offer in order for it to make sense. But still, we went from, you know, one of these days, the regional sports network model is going to fall apart to in very short amount of time. Oh, look, it's falling apart. Well, and there was a really great point on Twitter. Actually, for two things on Twitter, there's a really great tweet from Jason. I think that's a really fun tweet. Uh, I think specifically, Jason, was it with the Padres where you with were the Padres. looking at yeah, it's a really great tweet. Jason should hopefully put it in the show notes of it's it's his own tweet. I'm gonna hype him up. And it's just All a right. really like it's a it's a fun, simple, like here's the difference in how these games kind of look once they change. And although it doesn't seem like a lot, it, if you are an avid sports fan, if you're an avid baseball fan especially, it is really interesting. I enjoyed that tweet quite a bit. They um, they literally a- just brought took out the Bally's graphic package and put in Major League Baseball, the MLB Network's graphic package, kept the announcers the same, but it like it looks totally different. And it's just like, oh, I guess Major League Baseball has spent the last two months basically preparing for what happens if they take over the broadcasts of a of a uh, one of these RSNs that's defaulted on their contract. And this was the first and, and you could see it because the very next day they're like, no, no, we got it. Like within 24 hours, uh, they're like, we got it. Here's what's going to happen now. And, you know, the biggest thing that changed is that there's a score box in the upper left hand corner instead of down at the bottom. Literally, that's it. Amazing. Super great. Um, and so that, that's the first tweet. Uh, big fan of Jason's tweets in general. Thank Second you. tweet uh, is from J- uh, John Oran, who's a man I think I always pronounce wrong. I'm from Sports Business Journal, who's very, very smart on this, extremely intelligent. And he put out a good point, right? He said, like, here's this thing that's happening. And, like, the Padres, I think it was $60 million. I, 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 I don't quote me on that, though. Uh, someone double-check it. <laughs> but I think it was, like, $60 million. It was some, like, large amount of money that the Padres were not going to get because they no longer had this deal. And so there's this thing of, like, well, that's a lot of money, right, to, 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 to not go to a team. Or whatever the large sum of money was, it was this idea of, like, you have to make up that money somewhere. And the yeah. MLB is not going to make it up. Like, they're trying to figure that out. And so as the RSNs start to collapse, as the MLB, to Jason's point, like, they prepare for it in the in the kind of short term. They're very prepared to be like, okay, well, we can carry the games and we'll figure it out and we'll offer plan- fans a way to kind of continue watching for the rest of the season. As we get into the next season and as people are figuring out, well, what's the best way to do this and at what cost and kind of understanding that baseball, even with the longest season in professional sports, is still very seasonal by nature – that's a really complicated question that every single company and broadcaster and, and league with uh, access with with sports media rights is trying to determine. The MLB has to figure it out fast and quickly, yeah. and a lot of eyes are going to be on it because a lot of eyes are going to be like, "Are customers willing to pay?" It's the big question. How long are they willing to pay? Mm-hmm. What extra incentives do they need in order to pay? And then, of course, really the the underlying theme of so much of our conversations on this podcast is there a bundle? That makes sense that we can just offer people or are they only interested right. in their home market? And and obviously this takes out the or obviously this takes out the national games. Like clearly there is still that is right. its own thing. But I do think it's a very interesting predicament uh, and very frightening predicament if you're the MLB. Like, you know, it's, it's it almost feels very house of cardsy once that and dominoesy once that first one goes. 
Yeah, I like, mean, there, we'll see what happens. There's a bankruptcy judge who's going to rule on the Diamond Sports bankruptcy, and it may, depending on how that judge rules, this may happen very rapidly in some other markets as well. I'm also curious, and I hope that somebody digs into it. I'm curious what. Maybe not for this year, because I think expediency was the deal this year. But in the long run, what is the relationship financially between the cable and satellite providers and the team that's providing the games? Because even if it's they're not getting what the RSN was getting from the cable company, they will presumably get compensated by the cable company to a certain degree. Maybe, you know, and that has to be part of the equation. So they sell their ads. They uh, they get money from the cable per subscriber at some level and they get money from the consumers direct. I'm like, what is that number? How close is that to 60 million? And the answer is it's probably not as close. And and, and I would imagine at the next labor negotiations, um, this is going to be a talking point where the owners are going to say, oh, no, we don't have our TV money anymore. Yeah. You, we need to pay you less. But uh, we'll 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 see. I just I'm also just fascinated again with this idea of addressable homes, because like fans of the Dodgers know this when the Dodgers TV signed a deal that was not available on satellite or um, many of the cable systems in LA. And so you just couldn't see the Dodgers for years um, that the addressable homes thing that the sons mentioned, I've got the numbers here, 189% increase in reach for the Padres as well, that uh, they previously were the, the uh, Bally San Diego channel was in 1.1 million homes. And the, the combination of cable, all the cable and satellite providers, plus the internet, do you have the internet, 3.3 million homes. Now, not everybody's going to get the Padres, right? But the idea here is there are also a lot of people who couldn't see the Padres before, just like they couldn't see the Suns before. And and that addresses something that we've talked about, and this is not going to completely address it because they're going to have to pay. But the idea that uh, how do you have how do you build a product that you want a next generation of fans to to come up loving if it's not available to them? So the availability thing's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. No, it absolutely is fascinating. And I think another part of this equation that and let's play, you know, a game of of different universes and this is one timeline that this exists in. Let's say, right, because it was sixty million that that um mm-hmm. that the Padres are not gonna get. Let's play that out across all these teams, hypothetically, and to Jason's exact point that impacts negotiations with players, that impacts overall player spend and what you can do with it. And now let's play that out against the MLB. So cities like Boston and New York and Chicago, where they've got pretty big fan bases and they're wealthy teams to begin with. And now they're, they, I imagine that they also will kind of partner with other local teams that have big fan bases. Like you kind of get to a point where you're like, you can see a New York market, th- not, if not necessarily thriving the way that it was before, still finding a way to thrive in a DTC market in a way that other teams may not. And what does that do to baseball in general, right? And this is like one timeline, one very extreme timeline. But it, it, this does get to the question of like, okay, the RSNs fold. This does impact teams, and this does impact the uh, adaptability from fans, and this does affect potentially the actual teams themselves and the enjoyment of it. And and if that happens, then you you talk to any owner. This impacts league attendance, which in baseball, 
um, you know, like this comes across with every league where they're, you know, half the owners argue that having people in attendance is much more important than figuring out media rights. That's wrong. I can tell you point blank that's wrong, but it does come up. Right. And with baseball, which is the game, a lot of, I would argue the game that most non-sports fans are willing to go to because they want a hot dog and beer and kind of hang out with their friends in the summer. You know, if if there's less adoption, if baseball can't figure this thing out, and how does that impact it down the line? And these are big, macro, scary things that may or may not come to fruition. And I argue it probably wouldn't. But it is like one of the themes that Jason and I have on this podcast is that the decline, the rapid rapidity of the decline in linear is happening so much faster than anyone, including the guys at Moff and Nathanson who are brilliant. You know, the, the executives in the rooms anticipated. Yeah. And the RSNs and the potential move of ESPN moving to ESPN, uh, like OTT, sooner than um, expected, is going to be a very big House of Cards moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be, and, and not the TV show, like an actual tumbling down House of Cards. Um, <laughs> the uh, yeah, it's it's going to be it's going to really be something to see. Also, I do wonder if in the long run, I'm, I love this Phoenix Suns idea. I wonder if in the long run, the answer for uh, the Padres might be put it put it over the air. <laughs> And that just provides access okay. and you make money on the commercials and then also available at available direct to consumer. We'll see uh, what ha- what happens. Everybody's going to learn and they're going to try stuff and, and we're going to find out. But um, just fascinating stuff. Uh, before we go really quickly, I'm going to get one letter in. We don't have time for more, but I'm going to do one really fast. This is from Phil in the 206 who says, after receiving the Netflix password crackdown email, I got that. Did you get that? Oh. Uh, my wife removed I didn't get her. It yet. Oh, I, I got it. My wife removed her niece and her mom. Um, then we realized we hardly watch Netflix without their occasionally use. Why keep it? So we canceled our ten-year-old account. Do you think Netflix considered that password sharing actually makes it tougher for the account holder to cancel? It certainly lost its stickiness for us. I think this is a great, a great question. I'm sure they considered it. Right. This is a yeah. tricky, fraught kind of thing that they're doing here. I have heard from several people who. Uh, what what this has prompted is uh, I like I know somebody who is on a uh, a friend's Netflix account, but they haven't seen the friend in two or three years, but they had stayed signed mm-hmm. in. And obviously that friend got this email and went through because it contained a link to the Netflix page where you can see who's in your account and remove them. And this person was like, oh. I guess I need to pay for Netflix or, you know, I can't ask that friend. Right. So Netflix wins in, in just having people remove kind of hangers on from this, but I, I, they have to know that there is some level of, of stickiness to a shared account where everybody's kind of involved and, and, you know, you can't pull the plug because you're pulling the plug from every, any, everyone. Yeah. It's, it's, it's tough. I, I, I'm sure they will lose customers because of that. Two easy answers, Phil. One, they have done an intensive amount of research on this. They would not have rolled it out to the UK market if they weren't sure that the impact on customer loss. So what you're talking about is actual customer loss. Like, you know, when you're talking about uh, your wife removing her niece and mom, that is not actual customer loss. That is potential user loss from a consumption perspective. But if you're on the ad free plan, no actual customer has been lost. So then you cancel. So that very limited amount of customer loss they have, I imagine, anticipated. We will see in the next earnings if it's been if it's outside the realm of what they expected. But here's my argument. I would assume that they have not lost outside that realm. And two, they have anticipated you leaving. And if you look at the wording on every time Netflix ups the prices, which is effectively what Netflix has kind of done here, right? 
in, in, in the, what they've said is basically the value it has kind of decreased for for certain customers, and we kind of expect this, and we're based on the price that we're asking them to pay or access whatever it might be. Their argument has always been, and it always will be, that if we make the best content that people are going to want, that you will come back to the surface. Hastings, Reed Hastings has said this multiple times on the earnings calls, which is we understand you're going to leave probably at some point. We only hope we can bring you back. Hmm. There's a reason they're changing scheduling of shows. There's a reason they're overhauling slates. So their hope is that you may have canceled now, but there's a show or a movie in three months' time that brings you back to the platform and they can try to keep you there. So it it is a thing where they are aware of it. They're hoping it doesn't exceed expectations, but they are they have planned for it. Okay, and that brings us to the end of this episode. Remember, you can now support the show. Go to downstream.plus. I love it. Become a subscriber. You'll get complete access to the full episode of every episode. And if not, that's fine. We love you anyway, and you'll still be able to get a lot of stuff on the free feed. So don't feel too bad about it, please. Uh, But if you would consider supporting us, we would love that. If you have a question for us, whether you pay us or not, downstreamfeedback.com. We would love to get more of your questions in. We had to have a little bit of a shorter show this time, so I've got a stack of great letters, but I always want more. And you can find Director of Strategy Julia at Loudmouth Julia on Twitter and Blue Sky, by the way, and uh, writing at parrotanalytics.com and puck.news. You can find me at sixcolors.com, and I appear on many other podcasts here at Real AFM, as well as over at theincomparable.com. Until next time, Julia, say goodbye. Thanks, Jason. Bye, everyone.